Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is 02202022. That's just fun for me. I'm so glad you could be here on this cold and icy morning, and I pray as you are leaving later that you walk out there safely because that uh, ice is a melting. Our scripture today is a rather short one, but it is the turning point in the Gospel of Luke. If you wanted to follow along, it's, I believe, page 734 in your hymnal, in your, ay, 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 I do that every week. Pew Bible, Luke 9, 51, 56. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was headed for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and the disciples went on to another village. Amen. Now, I must admit... When it comes to the Old Testament, I do actually have a favorite of all time prophets. I mean, he is the original goat, greatest of all time, you know. Okay, it's Elijah. Now, Elijah is enigmatic. He's mysterious. He appears out of nowhere. And then he goes on all these crazy adventures, speaking out, bringing people to God. Now, he comes in 17, uh, 1 Kings 17, 1, and it's a perfect place for him to appear because knowing about Elijah is knowing his nemeses, which is King Ahab and Queen uh, Jezebel. He appears right after their introduction as a way to lead into what his ministry, what his call is. Now, he is a prophet. Prophets are the counterbalance. They are the third branch that balances out ancient Israel. There are three branches. There are the priests, who, of course, take care of the religious matters. They take care of the relationship between God and the people. There's the kings, the royalty, the nobility, early on the judges, you know, political authority. And then there are the prophets, and their purpose is to take whenever the priests or the kings go too far off the rails, they bring them back in. There's a, kind, a couple different kinds of prophets. The main ones are like the, the traditional prophets, the, the settled prophets. You know, uh, Nathan, you know, you don't hear his name very often, but he is a prophet and a friend and advisor to King David. He just kind of is around. He gives good advice. And you could also call uh, Deborah, the prophetess, who is a judge who leads Israel to victory, or, or Elisha, who's Elijah's protege, his, his successor, who, who tends to live in one place. These are the prophets where you know where they are, you can go find them when you need advice, when you need help. Then there's the, the, the preaching prophets, the ones who sit at the edge of society, you know, the prophets who write the books, Hosea, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, 
It's a fun name, always to say. You know, we're, they weren't really recognized in their time. At most, you know, they got mocked by others. But as history went on, people reflected on their words and realized how much sense, how much power they spoke. And then there are the ones I like to call the classic prophets, the ones that make me think of, of uh, John the Baptist, the wild men and women who live out on the edge, not on the edge, beyond the edge of society, who come in and make some grand announcement and then disappear, fading back into the scenery. There's Bibles full of them. There's even a few where we don't even know their names. It just tells us a prophet came and did this. But Elijah's unique, even among them. First off, he is extra mysterious. He's not mysterious in terms of we just didn't know his name, but it's like he's hiding who he is. When the Bible introduces him, they call him Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe um, in Gilead. Okay, Gilead makes a lot of sense. Uh, you think of, of Israel in the ancient times. You know, it's got the Mediterranean on one side, and on the other side it has the Jordan River, which runs from Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, down to the Dead Sea. For the most part, all of Israel was on the west edge of that, or west side of that. But there's an area called the Transjordan, which is people who decide to live on the east side. And Gilead is there, so we know that. But Tishbe doesn't make any sense. Nowhere else in the Bible is it mentioned. Nowhere else anywhere is it ever mentioned. It's a complete mystery. Now, okay, there could be reasons. Remember, spelling was not standardized until, well, fairly recently. You know, dictionaries have only been around for about 200 years, give or take. So perhaps, perhaps it's a misspelling. You know, they just had the wrong name down because they don't have a standard spelling. Possible. But still, it's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. It's not mentioned anywhere in any of the books that the Hebrews wrote that weren't in the Bible, the apocryphal books. They aren't in any records of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians. They're great record keepers. But Tishbe does look a lot like another word in Hebrew. Hebrew is a very flexible language where you can just shift things a little bit. And mind you, there's no vowels in Hebrew at this time. So... The way it could be read, and I think the way that it's meant, is it is Elijah, the man who dwells among the settlers of Gilead, though is not one of them. Man, that sounds mysterious, doesn't it? He's a man with no history. Just one day he appeared in Gilead and lived there for a while. Like some Lone Ranger-esque character. Anyway. Oh, I turned my page and I got myself all out of order here. There we go. Anyway, he then goes on and breaks the mold in many more ways. The biggest way being he does not disappear. When Elijah comes, he, he appears and he goes to Ahab and says, Look, you guys are so sinful, God is saying, no more rain. And then this is the part where we expect him to be like, and he goes away and maybe he'll appear again, we don't know. Actually, the Bible follows him 
They follow him into his adventures as he goes and he lives in the wilderness as he's fed by ravens. It follows him to the widow's house where he makes sure that her food never runs empty. A jar that's perpetually full of oil, a jar that's perpetually full of flour. And he brings her dead son back to life. He continues to appear here and there, always, always standing up to Ahab when Ahab makes some major mistake, some, some problem. He becomes the hero in the middle of the book of Kings. That's First and Second Kings together. He becomes the hero when all other people fail. Elijah is there fixing things, or at least trying to. I mean, we see that kind of character in a lot in our in our modern storytelling you know the the lone ranger-esque characters who appear out of nowhere and fix the problem you know i'm a fantasy person it's gandalf if you want history um uh there there's a guy where did i put it here uh friedrich wilhelm von steuben which if you remember your revolutionary history he's a man who appeared basically out of nowhere this is the way the history books put it he appears out of nowhere with a letter from the king of Prussia saying, this guy's great. And he's put in charge of the, the inspector general for Washington's army. And it's only after that that Washington's army starts to win. Now, there's a lot more to von Steuben's life. But the point being is when you read a history book, they make it Elijah-esque. He's mysterious. He appears, he does the job, he disappears. He happened to disappear to upper New York where he lived the rest of his life, but that's not the point. Anyway, today's sermon is brought to you by the word anyway, because I'm tangential today. Back to Elijah. Well, actually, Malachi. Now, Malachi lives 400 years after Elijah, but we could see through his writing the kind of man Elijah became in the minds of the Hebrews. You see, when Malachi wrote his book, I think it's verse 5 of chapter 4, he wrote, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, the people understood this, why Elijah would be the one. Elijah is the man who stands up against evil, who has perfect faith in God, who can work outside and inside the box. Up until his time, everyone looked to Moses. Moses was the great prophet. But the paradigm has shifted. It's now Elijah. Every prophet after him is going to be measured against him. And it's the reason why, you know, when we, we see Elijah, we know we see John the Baptist. John the Baptist is constantly compared to him. And it doesn't help the fact that he also dresses like him in a furry suit and leather belt. It was a thing, I guess. And it will be what Jesus is measured against. People are going to constantly think, oh, Jesus is Elijah. I mean, we just read that last week where they said, you know, who am I? And he said, well, some people say you're Elijah. Lots of people were saying he was Elijah. Elijah's mentioned more in Luke than any of the other Gospels. And on top of that, Luke is going to reference back to Elijah's life. Not in word, not in like, just like Elijah did this, da-da-da-da-da. But he, they will make references in how Jesus does things to how Elijah did things. Elijah feeds 
five, you know, feeds the multitudes from a small amount of food. Elijah brings the dead child back, from the, back to life. Elijah uh, heals the sick. Jesus will do the same things. And then we come to today's story. And you, the reason I'm telling you all about Elijah, I'm crushing hard on him today because I, I really do like him. He's one of my favorite guys in the Bible. But the reason I do is you cannot understand this weird little passage in chapter 9 unless you look at Elijah. You see, it actually happens beginning of the second book of Kings. Second Kings, chapter 1. Ahab is dead. Ahab thought he could win a war, thought he could disguise himself as a, as a common soldier and escape being assassinated, but it didn't work out and he dies. His, king, his son Ahaziah becomes king. Now, in those days, it was common that people spent a lot of time on the roof. Uh, not because they, you know, it, they didn't have a house like mine. It's not a Cape Cod. You do not stand on a Cape Cod roof. You fall off of one. Anyway. See? Anyway. Tangents. Um, anyway. You spent a lot of time up there because it was a comfortable place to be before air conditioning, before central fan systems to blow air around. And while he was up there one day, he fell through the lattice work and injured himself gravely. He ends up lying in bed and worried that he is not going to make it. So he sends some messengers to go ask of God if he is going to live and die. I'll refrain that. He asks a God because he doesn't send anyone to the God of Israel. He sends them to the town of Ekron in Philistine. Mind you, you know, Israelites, Jews, they don't get along with Philistine. But he sends them to Philistine to uh, a god called Baal. Baal is the chief god in Philistine, and, and depending where you worship him, you might have different names, different styles of the god. And the one there is his, his name either tra translates to um, the master of the heavenly house, or the lord of the heavenly house, or it might translate to lord of the flies. And I don't mean like children on an island stabbing at each other, Lord of the Flies. The idea that flies brought disease and he could force them to fly away, to go away. That's how they viewed him. And that translates to the name Baal Zebub. And I only tell you all this because I'm going to read this and you're going to go, oh, Baal Yes, it's where we think that name comes from. So he sends the messengers to Baal Zebub to get answers. And along their way, they encounter a strange man wearing a hairy cloak and a leather belt. And this man stops them and said, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Baalzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. Now, Ahaziah, of course, recognizes who this man is when the report is brought back to him. And so he's like, okay, I've made a mistake. Let's send somebody to go get, go get him. You know, go bring Elijah to me. So a captain goes out with 50 men. They find uh, Elijah sitting on a hill and say, come with us, man of God. 
very ruthlessly and aggressively. And Elijah looks down on them and goes, if I am a man of God, may you be consumed by fires from heaven. And fires from heaven come. Second group comes. Another captain, another 50 men. Again, quite rude, quite mean. Try to take him by force. And again, fires from heaven fall. The third time, of course, you know, threes. The third time, the captain comes up and says, please take mercy on us. We're just here to bring you back. We pray for mercy and that you'll just come with us. And, and he comes. Now to finish this story, he gets to Ahaziah and says, you are a fool, you're a terrible person, and you're going to die. It, it doesn't work out for Ahaziah, and he dies. Now it's that story that John and James are thinking about when they reach the Samaritan village, and they are rejected. Jesus is the new great prophet. He is the Messiah, and he is being disrespected by a group of Samaritans just as Elijah was. Mind you, you know, the northern tribe, the Israel, capital was Samaria, which is where the name Samaritan comes from. So again, the Samaritans are disrespecting the great prophet of God. And so they want Jesus to respond in the same way that Elijah had, to call down fire from heaven. After all, as I said, he was like Elijah. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, he fed the many out of small portions. But Jesus says, no. Now, our first reaction is to say, of course he said no. Why wouldn't he say no? Jesus is the prince of peace, not the prince of the impromptu barbecue. He is not Guy Fieri. No, Food Network jokes, fine. Stay away from Food Network jokes, okay. But come on, we know Jesus is the softer, kinder prophet. He's not like the guys of old, right? Well, okay. Remember the basic rule of reading scripture. Never read just the section you're doing. Read the whole section around it. Because if we jump forward a little bit, we're going to reach the sending of the 72. Now, as he's traveling down, he's going to send his his disciples ahead of them, 72 of them to be exact, to go and deliver the gospel to the villages in Ped. And as he's doing that, he delivers them a warning of what will happen to those who refuse to hear. He says, but when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Well, that's frankly more frightening than Elijah. I mean, calling down fire from heavens, pretty terrible. Sodom and Gomorrah was brimstone and fire falling from heavens, taking out entire towns. That's a lot worse, right? That doesn't seem like the Jesus we know. So why, why this story? Why are James and John rebuked? Why doesn't he call down fire from heaven? Okay, this is the only time in the entire Gospel of Luke, in fact, the Gospels, in which Jesus specifically enters a town of Samaritans. Now, he's in a land called Samaria, so he's entering other Samaritan towns. He's meeting with other Samaritans. 
He's going to encounter them all over the place. But here is the only time where it says a town of Samaritans. Now, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. They did not get along at all. Basically, since they had split up after, you know, Solomon died. They, they may have come from the same stock. They're all children of Jacob. They may have once been a united kingdom. They may all serve the same God. But that's about where the similarities end. They do not like each other. They think the other one is doing the evil things. For instance, they both think that they have the only place to worship God. For the Jews, they think it, it's Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. For the Samaritans, to even this day, it's Mount Gerizim, the Mountain of Blessings near Shechem. That's a callback to Advent, by the way, where we talked about that. So, when we actually read the words... Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus was rejected because they didn't like his message. They rejected him because he was going to Jerusalem. Their problem isn't that Jesus, they don't like, it's not, yeah, 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 try it again. The problem isn't that Jesus is giving the good news. The problem is that he's Jewish. That's it. It's seriously the reason. And the other big difference is Jesus is the one who's approaching the men as opposed to where Elijah was being approached by the men. Goes on. Because you also have to recognize where this is. As I said, this is the turning point in the gospel. At this point, Jesus is going to start, it's going to take 10 chapters to do this, but he's going to start journeying to Jerusalem. This is, we talk about the Gospel of Luke, it's a travel narrative. We are now starting the travel narrative. And he is going to be wandering around, preaching and teaching until he at last reaches there. And during this time, he's going to take his disciples and he's going to mold them into leaders, into the founders of the church, including doing things like learning how to evangelize. Which, frankly, I think is one of the hardest things to learn. But he's going to be teaching that. And the first thing that happens is he is rejected. He's turned away. His evangelism fails. Jesus' evangelism fails. That's a hard lesson for us, isn't it? I mean, we will stumble. We will fall. That is part of life. But in Jesus' actions here, we learn that we should accept those stumbles, those fails with grace. And to continue moving forward. I mean, after all, Jesus doesn't turn his back on the Samaritans. He will go on to have Samaritans who will come and follow him in his life. He will use Samaritans as role models in his sermons. He will, well, after the, his death, resurrection, and ascension, the first group of people who decide to become Christians outside of the Jews are Samaritans. There are times in our lives when we have the opportunity to evangelize, whether through our words and our actions. Sometimes they'll be a success. Sometimes they'll be a failure. And when we have that failure, we don't need to be like John and James to start screaming angrily and calling down fire from heaven. 
as I was talking with Gracie about it earlier, I was just you know, thinking about what it's been like having a four-year-old at home lately who is discovering her own voice. And part of me is so proud of her because I want her to be a strong child. I want her to be a strong adult. But I will tell you how often that strongness becomes something hard to deal with as a parent. Thankfully, I'm just as stubborn as she is. Mommy's a little less stubborn, but that's okay. She needs a soft parent, too. Goes to her for hugs. It also to ask her if she can have what she wants that I said no to. Mommy says no, then. Don't worry. We're on the same page. We may be hurt by others' refusal to hear the good news, to hear our opinions, to do things that are different than the way we would want to do them. But it's not our place to force upon them our opinion, our way of doing things. That's not our call. Jesus is creating a double standard. And believe it or not, this is a thing that happens throughout the Bible. There are double standards constantly, and that's okay, because the way it's meant to work. You see, God makes covenants with humans throughout time. First was Noah and God, who make the covenant after, after the flood. And, and the, the seal on this covenant is the rainbow. That will remind people for all time of this. And the promise is, I will not flood the earth again, but... On your side, you are not allowed to kill each other, and you're not allowed to eat meat with blood in it, and um, um, you have to have lots of children. That is understood through Moses, I mean through Noah, a covenant that is made with all people. Every human on earth is supposed to be covered under that covenant. And then he makes a new covenant with Moses. I'm sorry, with Abraham. I'm skipping a whole covenant here. Making a covenant with Abraham that applies only to his descendants. So the descendants are still held under the, Noa the Noahic covenants, but now they also have a new covenant. And in this one, which is sealed by circumcision as a symbol of their faith, God will make them numerous, will give them their own lands, and this applies to all of his descendants. We usually talk about it in terms of the Hebrews, the Israelites, but it actually applies to Ishmael, um, Abraham's first son, and the six that we never talk about. Noah, uh, Abraham had six more sons after Isaac. Uh, Zimran, Jokshan, uh, Medan, Median, Ishbak, and Shua. And I'll probably hopefully never have to say those names again. We don't know anything really much about them. They just were. But then those people... You know, those other six plus Ishmael, they're not covered under the next covenant, which is made with Moses at the Mount Sinai, where the people agreed that we will follow this law and we will be faithful to you. And God said, and then I will protect you. And the gift that was given on that, that seal, so we have the rainbow, circumcision, and this one will be the Sabbath day. We will seal this with a day of rest. And there were two smaller covenants. Again, we're getting smaller each time. One that will only run along the priesthood of Aaron. So the high priest, they will have their own special covenant with God. And David will have his own special covenant with God. Each time, 
the covenant covers a smaller and smaller and smaller group of people. Jesus here, Jesus is making another new covenant with yet even a smaller group, at least at first, a small subset of, of the descendants of Israel, both Samaritans and Jews, in which the people promise to follow his teachings and live a new way, and in return, God will give them life everlasting. And all of this, it has its own seal, the sin, um, repentance of sins, perhaps through a symbolic action such as baptism. Now, Jesus does not expect those who have not entered to follow the same rules. Those who come into the kingdom, those who agree to be baptized, to repent in sins, who enter into this new covenant with God, are expected to follow the rules. But those who are outside of it do not have the rules applied to them. If they reject the message here and now, it's not our job to punish them. So, we are given the message to evangelize. But if that message is rejected, accept it. To accept it with grace. And to trust God will handle any judgments that are to come. It's not our place. Just as, you know, if you're walking around and you stub your toe on the corner of the bed, it's not the bed's fault that your toe was rejected. You can't get mad at the bed. I mean, you can, but come on, face it, the bed doesn't care. We must trust God and keep walking. There's one way we know that this is what it's about. I'm actually going to jump on. This is 57 through 62, as the NIV puts it. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Father, Lord, first let me go and bury my dead father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow looks back um, and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. We talk about these two sets of standards and recognition that sometimes people aren't willing to accept the harder standard of living. That's really hard for us. And I get that. I mean, you are here, I presume most of you at least, because you like God at least, right? You like Jesus? He's a pretty good guy. You might even be here because you're excited about him. You might even tell others about him because you're excited. But not everyone can accept that journey not everyone can take those steps. Not everyone can live as a Christian. 
I'll reframe that. Not everyone is willing to make those steps. Not everyone is willing to make that transition to follow those rules. So we must put our trust in God. Our trust in God that they will work in others' hearts. The trust that they will see in our lives and see how we live and maybe they will join. And if we're told no, if we're told we don't agree with you, if we're told no, I don't like what you're saying, they turn their backs on you. To trust that God will handle things. It hurts when the good news is rejected. I get that. But you know what? It's not our job to make people believe like us. They'll come to it on their own. Just trust God. This feels like a depressing end. But sometimes that's the way it is. I guess the more I think about it, the more it really isn't a sad ending. Yeah, it means a little sad because it means you're not going to fix everything. But you know what's a lot worse? Being angry when you can't fix everything. So as you go out there and you live your life and you try to do the best you can every day, accepting the fact that none of us is perfect, remember that even Jesus couldn't call people to the good news. And when someone does something you don't like, someone disagrees with you, take a deep breath. Do not call down any fire from heaven, which frankly, if you do, let me know. I kind of want to see that sometime, but not on anyone. Don't call down any fire from heaven. Take a deep breath and turn your face onward to the next location you're going. Whether that is Jerusalem or the grocery store. Amen.